This is our final uh, session together. Um, I know, again, one of the challenges in all of this is it's such, such a weighty discussion. And it's discouraging. Um, but I think that I'm hopeful that during this time, um, we can be a little bit more encouraging. I mean, I think all of the panel, and I want to introduce Aaron Osborne. Aaron is our uh, junior high pastor. And as you would expect, we've been talking about this for a long time here at RBC. We're like, you know, as the culture you know, kind of veers off track, it's easier and easier because our kids are immersed in culture and phones and all that kind of thing. You know, it's not unexpected that things, that these things started impacting the church. We have had some families who have said, we need some help. We're in a situation, our 13-year-old has come home and said, you know, whatever they're going to say. And so I've asked Aaron to be part of the panel as well because, um, Walt, Maria, and Sharon don't really know what's happening in our context, right? And so I really wanted Aaron to be able to respond to, well, what are we seeing? What are we hearing without breaking confidentiality with any student or whatever? But like, how as a youth team are, what do you see in all of this? But I I really wanted to start just kind of throwing this out to anybody. I think that a variety of people have asked questions related to a couple of, there's a couple of themes. One is, well, what do I do? So our nephew has come out as non-binary. Uh, how do we navigate that? And, you know, they, they've, they've suddenly declared that they have a different name. Or how do we find the line of loving people in our lives without necessarily bowing to the position that they've taken that we believe isn't a biblical position, how do we handle that? Should I, should I call them by the name that they've requested or should I not? Like, how do we, how do we navigate that? I'm going to throw that out to anybody um, and just, Walt, you look like you're ready to go. I'm ready to go. Okay. I, knew, I knew he would Walt be. is always ready to go. Okay. Especially after I just had a nice little snack. snack. Get ready. <laughs> it was so good. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just tell you what I do uh, when I'm approached with this. I, I have two or three questions that I always ask. Uh, the first one usually is, when they tell me they want to do this, is I ask them, why do you want to erase who you are? You see, because, and then I explain to them, you need to understand that going through this process is a self-destructive process. You see, because you can't get to where you think you want to go without destroying who you are. So it becomes an interesting question for them to answer when I say, why do you want to erase who you are? And then I ask them, before they can answer the first one, tell me how you're going to be better off after you do this And then lastly, who is telling you that it's possible for you to do it? And if you can answer those three questions, we can have a conversation. Mm. And so when they begin to self-reflect and begin to realize that, really, um, okay, I got to take hormones, I got to cut off body parts, I got to, every bit of that is self-destructive from start to finish. And so answering those questions, it actually, I've, I've had this happen where I've, I've not directly said it to the children, but I, and four, four mothers have contacted me at the same time, and I had them sit down with the child in a quiet place, turn off all the phones, everything, and ask those questions of their, I think it was the 13, 14, and two 15-year-olds. When the mother, not me, sat down and asked those questions of the child, all four of them decided not to go through with this idea. They desisted from it because they began then in one case where the daughter began to cry when she talked about why she wanted to erase who she was. And those questions are interesting because there's something that is driving them to do that. Maybe it's the internet, but maybe it's something deeper than that. So that's, that's the approach that I take when they realize that they're in a self-destructive process. That's typically 
not a healthy psychological place to be. Thank you. Maria? Yeah. I just wanted to add, those are great questions. Um, I think you're helping, helping tap into logic and reason there. I'm thinking also when it's not specifically your child, but you're trying to kind of support the family, um, it, it's a little nuanced to find out kind of what do the parents think about this? What are the parents doing? Um, but I think one thing is a lot of people don't know they have an option. A lot, so many people are told you have to affirm or, you know, the child's going to commit suicide. You have to do this. And I've, I've talked to parents who've said, oh my gosh, I, I feel like, I, I felt like I was crazy until I found your organization or until I found someone who told me, no, you don't have to affirm this. Um, so if you're in that situation where someone you know and love has a child who has announced a transgender identity, I think I would try to talk with the family, the parents, and find out, so how are you doing? What are your thoughts about this? What did the pediatrician say? Did you talk to the principal? And you're very likely to hear, oh, yeah, they said it's really important to affirm this. And then you can start kind of pushing back on that. <laughs> really? Because I'm hearing a lot of people are getting their kids back by taking a different path, and you can offer them some resources and options. I would just add um, to really use caution and be very prayerful about how you approach it, because again, with the whole issue of like the language being hijacked, they call this gender-affirming care when you start with the social transition of just changing the names and the pronouns, which is the first step on the pathway they make it sound like it's good um, and that the only way to affirm is to use the name and pronouns. And then, of course, for people of the faith, we all want to be loving and compassionate and accepting. And they're, they're trying to convince us that the loving, compassionate thing is to affirm. The loving and compassionate thing is to tell the truth every time. The truth is on our side. It's undeniable, it's immutable, it cannot be changed. So I would use extreme caution um, before I would willingly agree to ever refer to somebody by a different name and a pronoun because you're not telling them the truth. You're, right. you're helping them erase who they are. It is also possible to avoid the name and pronoun issue altogether. Really, the pronoun only comes up when you're speaking about that person to someone else. It's the third person pronoun that's at issue. Mm -hmm. When I'm speaking to Walt, I call him you. Walt, how are you? I'm not saying, Walt, how is he? Mm -hmm. um, and so you can, you can avoid that by just sticking with the proper name. Um, and as far as the name goes, um, you know, there are nicknames. Hey, honey. Oh, hey, sweetie. It's a little convoluted, but if it's really an issue, the child is really pushing, there are ways to kind of skirt it and avoid it. All right, we need, we, I really want to move on because we have like a thousand questions and we're not going to get to about a third of them anyway. W one of the themes that kind of came up through some of the questions was navigating, you know, well, we know your situation, right? Your grandmother dressed you in a, in a ball gown, right? What, some of the things in life aren't quite so cut and dry, though. You have a little girl who likes to play with trucks. You know, you have a boy who picks up a doll from time to time. I mean, I think, I think we know statistically, generally speaking, that boys and girls tend to, to kind of migrate to certain kinds of toys and so forth, but sometimes not, right? We have girls who are tomboys, and one of the... Uh, moms wrote here, you know, I have a daughter who was always a tomboy, liked her hair short, you know, always played, you know, sports, this and that. She's married to a wonderful, godly guy today. And I think, I have to think if she was a teenager through all of that, she'd have been guided in a whole different direction. So we don't want parents freaking out, oh my gosh, you know, my, my five-year-old girl picked up a truck. But how do we navigate through some of those social constructs, some that are indeed destructive, dressing your boy in a, in a, in a ball gown for years, versus just, hey, you know what? She likes to play sports. It's okay. She, you know, she's likely to turn out fine. You know what I mean? How do we navigate some of those things without freaking out um, and not overly, you know, 
I'm going to rip the truck out of her hand and give her a doll. And I mean, how do we navigate that? Yeah, you know, it's so important for us, this word affirmation, right? If we can take that out of the vocabulary and just realize that kids are curious, you know, naturally curious. You mentioned natural things that happen. Kids become confused about their body. The, the, The point where we begin to create harm, in my view, uh, is that we begin to tell them they can change or they're transgender. I don't, I don't even use the word transgender because I look at it from a biblical standpoint and from a biblical standpoint and from a medical standpoint and from a scientific standpoint, there is no such thing. It's a word that was made up by primarily people who were pedophile activists, uh, Alfred Kinsey, Harry Benjamin, and John Money. There's others, but those were the three key players. They they liked the idea of you know having boys look more like girls, and that was kind of a sexual arousal thing. And so they're pedophiles, unhealthy behavior. So I don't even if if I don't use the word transgender, and I just begin to look at a child as experimenting or whatever with a toy. That's not a boy. That's not a girl. Let the, you know, girls can play great football. They can be good baseball players. And, and so I think it's important for us not to put them in a box because of a toy they picked up or because of something they're playing with. Appreciate that. Maria, did you want to respond to that too? Yeah, um, I agree. Kids play. Kids try things out. Um, my friend's son, when he was three, wanted to wear the blue princess dress at preschool every day. And parents were freaking out a little bit. This was 15, 16 years ago, and the preschool teachers told the parents, this is perfectly normal. He's just trying it. His best friend right now is a girl. She likes to play dress up. He's just playing along. This means nothing about his future sexuality. And after some period of time, it stopped, and that boy is now a very normal heterosexual young man. Today, you know what would happen if a boy tried to wear the princess dress. As parents, as educators, as adults, we need to look at that situation and be like, oh, cool. You want to wear that? Sure, go ahead. You can wear that. If it wore on, no pun intended, but if that odd behavior went on and on and on and on and were accompanied by other things, like the child saying, I wish I weren't a boy, or, you know, daddy's mean and hates me. If you see accompanying issues that are also problematic and it's something that goes on a long time, then that's something you might want to look at with the help of a trusted therapist or someone to guide you. But just a child experimenting with with fun activities and, and things that they like to do, they should be encouraged to do that because this is not the 1950s. Those are regressive sex-based stereotypes that boys can't dance and girls can't play football and we need to just let kids be kids. Just add to that, uh, what are we doing to really affirm their, their gender, right? And, and what, are we, um, what are we doing to affirm the... I know, I know for you, when you have to teach on a passage like Ephesians 5, and you're like, oh man, how do I do that? What are the proper things that I can affirm in, in masculinity, right? I think as a, as a society, you know, uh, there's a lot of like, well, masculinity is, is very toxic. Well, what are the things of, hey, I want to teach my sons. How do I protect? How do I protect other people? How do I care for other people? How do I, um, not in a demeaning way, but how do I you know, kind of lead them and, and guide them? And, and what are those elements of my son's masculinity that I really want to affirm that are, you know, that it, it doesn't matter, you know, the clothes that he's wearing, but what are those things that I'm affirming in it? And, and in my daughter, what are the things of, of her femininity that, that I can really affirm and, and push into? Um, and I, that's kind of separated from the toys they're playing with or anything like that. I just think, I think as a society, we're not really teaching young men what it means to be, uh, to be a man. Uh, and I think that's part of the issue. Absolutely. Sharon, one of the questions is, what are my legal rights as a parent when the school system allows opposite gender, dress, or pronouns, so forth and so on? How do we handle it? Like if, per- if a parent really is facing that, they find out you know, that in my kid's classroom, they're, they're doing this, 
what's a parent's response in that, and what should they do if they would like to pursue some kind of action? What would you recommend? So, I mean, I'm always kind of a a biblical reconciliation person, so I would always start with your local school. I would start, you know, with a meeting with your principal. Um, Try to get an understanding, okay, what are the policies that you're operating under? How are these being handled? How is this being addressed? Um, Have there been any complications? Um, So I would kind of start there at at the local school level to see, make sure you have all the facts, know what know what's going on. Um, I would take advantage then if you know there's issues bumping it up to the school board. I mean everybody has a local elected school board representative. Um, some of them, most of them, are not going to be in alignment um, based on what I know of the current makeup of the school board. Um, start there. Um, obviously, there there does come a point in time where. We're, <laughs> In our world, we're calling it lawfare is kind of like the next uh, frontier where we're going to be forced to litigate these things. Um, an ADF is a law firm, and we can't litigate every case. Um, so we have a lot of allied attorneys throughout the country that help or can t- can take these cases by referral. Um, I think talking, you know, if you're not getting satisfaction, if you feel like your kids' rights are being violated. Um, yeah, you need to you need to seek legal help. You can go to the ADF website, it's adflegal.org. There's a little button you can request legal help. We have a huge intake department and they'll take your call, talk to you, try to feel, you know, get an, understand what's going on. If it's not something we can take um, for a variety of reasons, we can refer you out to other to other lawyers um, who will, you know, are like-minded and be able to help. Um, but I think, unfortunately, we're going to start getting there. Um, you know, ADF has two cases in Wisconsin right now where um, the school policies required the teachers to do secret social transitions without telling the parents. Um, so one's in the Kettle Marine School District, and one is, I forget the other one, in Wisconsin. Um, so we're, we're having to draw some lines in the sands uh, where, pe- where parents are going to stand up and say, you know, this is, is not okay. Um, there's also another case, not ours, it's the Child and Parent Rights campaign that I referenced in Florida, where um, a father, they're a practicing Catholic family, uh, very faith-filled in their Christian beliefs, um, had two daughters, perfectly normal female, no issues. One day they get a call from the school. Um, their daughter had tried to commit suicide by hanging herself in the bathroom. Parents rushed to the school, and they're like, what's going on? We, you know, our, our daughter's normal at home. Well, the school had been meeting with her secretly for months um, and had started socially transitioning her, which caused a lot of confusion, depression, and anxiety. Um, and the, you know, the daughter was taken away in a police car by herself. She was taken to the hospital. She was admitted to a mental institution for a week. Um, and so th- these parents have stood up and said, no, 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 you can't do this. They're my children. She's my daughter. And I have a right to direct her health care decisions, and you can't do this. So we're, we're getting to that point. So it depends on how egregious it is. Sometimes you might need to go there directly. But, again, that's why I encourage during my talk is this is the, the perfect time at the beginning of the school year to really know what's going on in your school. Look up your policies. Read all of the communications that are coming out. One of the things you can do, by the way, this is an add-on, is opt out your child from any surveys because a lot of what they're doing now is they're introducing these surveys and they'll, they'll tell you, oh, we're going we're gonna to survey your child. And you'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Well, the questions that they're asking in these surveys, surveys would blow your mind. Like, you know, have you ever thought about being sexually active with the opposite sex? How many times have you had sex? Well, I mean, what it, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. So you can opt out. So get in there, get into your school, read the policies, read, review the curriculum. Again, like I said, I would write a letter and just say, this is who we are, this is who our family is. You may not teach my child anything to do with names, pronouns, gender identity, blah, 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 and just kind of put everything on record, and then that sets things up down the road. I would also say that, um, again, the extreme is, oh my gosh, do I need to have a lawsuit in this situation, or what if my neighbor, you know, but being prepared. Um, ADF is growing by leaps and bounds because all of this is happening, right? Uh, anybody that's represented by ADF doesn't pay a cent. But they have an allied network as well for cases that they can't shoulder. 
and they often provide the resources to those attorneys so that even when they're an allied member working with people in these kinds of issues, people often don't have to pay a cent either. So you need to understand what's available. It may not be something for you, but it may be something for somebody that you know in this journey. Um, And again, remember, this isn't getting better, right? It's not getting better in our culture. We have to insert ourselves into the situation. Aaron, talk to us a little bit about Reston Bible Church. You know, we have a youth group. You work with kids. You've been in, the, you've been in youth ministry for how long? You've been our junior high pastor for how long? Uh, well, I've been in, on staff here just short of 15 years. Okay. And, and is that how long you've been in, in junior high role, your junior high role? Uh, I've been in the junior high role since uh, 12, 12 and a half years. Okay. So in the 12 and a half years that you've been here, think back 12 and a half years. You're young enough to be able to do that. Okay. Um, and then here we are 12 years later. What are, what are you seeing in some of these things? Um, are there some trend lines that are starting, as we have this conversation, that are starting to bubble up here at RBC? Again, I'm operating under an assumption that because we're all living in this world, um, we're all receiving these, you know, this data, these inputs, yep. right? And so in the vulnerable life of a junior hire, what are you, what are you starting to see? I- good that you point that the the vulnerable life of a junior hire i mean middle school is is an awkward transition period for for everyone um you know when i uh do my leader training or talk to different parents you know and i say how many of you would would just really love middle school and want to go back to middle school every year there's there's like one or two that are kind of crazy like that but the rest are like no 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 you couldn't pay me enough nope. uh, to go back there because it is it's just a period of transition where where your hormones are changing uh, your body is changing your relationship with your your peers are changing your parents are changing you know when you're in elementary school you know he's my friend because I like basketball and he likes basketball and we play basketball together and now there's this whole new well are you cool or not cool and someone said you were cool and I don't even know what cool is but um, and there's just there's just all these changes in transitions that are that are going on there and you feel you feel uncomfortable Um, and so in the midst of that that awkwardness what do I do with that how do I how do I handle all these these awkward transitions and um, if you read a book uh, irreversible damage um, by uh, Abigail uh, Schreier there we go Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that she writes, and she's a, a secular author, uh, but one of the things that she, she mentions and that I saw, you know, after reading it, I was like, oh, I have seen this over the, my years in youth ministry and just my time in, in high school, is that as students are going through that transition, they're, they're constantly trying to push, trying to push and trying to figure things out. How do I deal with that? And one of the trends that she mentioned is, you know, back... Um, late 80s, 90s, uh, you, have, you saw a huge, uh, huge rise in the rates of, of anorexia, eating disorders, um, uh, and into, you know, into the early 2000s. And then it transitioned from a lot of eating disorders to, to issues of cutting. I remember when I started, uh, started on staff here um, and, and working extensively with our students, I felt like I was counseling or talking to a new kid that, it, that was starting to cut. Uh, almost every other week. I mean, we come back from summer camp, and there'd be three or four new, new, new uh, families that we talked to. It was just, it was like, it just, it was everywhere. And now I, I don't really deal with a lot of cutting right now, but there's a lot of this, this gender confusion, um, and because that's that's what our society is now saying. You are a teen. You're going through. You're going through adolescence. You don't understand yourself. You're awkward right now. Here's the solution. Here's the pill that you need to take for for that that angst inside of you. You don't know how to deal with that angst. Well, the problem is you're really a, a boy trapped in a girl's body. And if you change that, that's going to solve your problem. And it went from eating disorders. Uh, to cutting uh, to to this is is just what I really see kind of pushed uh, pushed on our students and I think as as adults uh, our society pushed back against eating disorders pushed back against cutting and said hey that's self harm that's wrong and now this new form of self harm is out here and we're like oh that's great mm-hmm. 
Well, I think that's, can I just say, that's really important to understand. Just think about the logical conclusion of gender-affirming care and what that actually would mean in, in, in the context of a girl who's struggling with anorexia. If a, a, a girl who's struggling with anorexia see, looks in the mirror and she can weigh 90 pounds, but she sees a 180-pound girl, that's not reality. And there's not one parent, one teacher, one therapist, one doctor who would look at that girl and say, you're right, you are 180 pounds. No one would do that. That's what they're doing. They're looking at a child who has a mental health condition called gender dysphoria, and they're saying, you're right. You're confused. You're in the wrong body. That's what we're doing. And that, no one would do that with an anorexic, but we're going to do it with a child who's confused about their gender. Let me say this. So most of you know who attend here at RBC that before becoming a pastor, I worked in psychiatric health care. And if I was extremely smart... Uh, I'm not that smart. I, I would have been able to predict where we are today. Because in the late 80s, when I was working in psychiatric health care in the hospital, the one thing, the one thing that teenagers were allowed to not talk about in group therapy was same-sex attraction. Because the, everybody knew that they would get persecuted by the other kids when they were just out on the unit, right? And then when we moved through the late 80s into the early 90s, it became very, very in vogue for the girls, not the boys, for the girls to say they were bisexual. And then it just kind of went from there. And slow, we've been seeing this slow slide for th- several decades now. And whatever, is, whatever starts on the fringe forces to go mainstream, so this all, a lot of this started as we kind of kicked God out of the conversation of culture, right? We start seeing the fringe, the girls saying that they were bisexual, but then, and then it moved to the boys. Now today, if you were in a group therapy in the hospital somewhere with teenagers, whereas 30 years ago it would be, no, no, it's okay to not talk about that because you're going to get creamed out there with, when no adults around. Now they're championed. And that's one of the great challenges working with a family right now. Uh, whose student has come out as transgender and has never been more affirmed in their life. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so wonderful that you have come out and clarified for everyone. Who, Who isn't drawn to that? Right? Who isn't drawn to that kind of affirmation? And so it's been, and like Aaron's right, so in this season, it's this. In this season, it's something else. It's, it's a different element. Well, in this season, we have very serious consequences to embracing the cultural flow. And Maria, among everybody, you know, more than anyone, talks about the social contagion, right? That things, when you're in middle school especially, things are caught. And you just, you just make a suggestion, which kind of brings me to another question that I'm just going to throw out to the, the, the panel. How do you respond to someone who says, you know, and you, there's chemicals involved. People are born this way. Like, how do you encourage people to respond to this notion that people are discovering what's been there all along? Yeah. Well, uh, when I, when time I work with somebody... Um, that's contacting me and working directly with the individual. I think about myself first and what happened to me. So I I have a bias to begin with. And so what I start with, and and this is what I do typically. Somebody will write me and say I'm a transgender. I was told I have gender dysphoria and I've transitioned. And so I typically write back and say, well, I would like to help you. You're not a transgender. You've never transitioned, and you don't have gender dysphoria. So I know I'm going to get their attention. <laughs> and so what, what I begin to do is explore with them, you know, what it, what's this all about? Were they sexually abused? Were they emotionally abused? Was it a social contagion? Did they find it on the Internet? So it begins the exploration of finding out what caused them to think that they need to go down this route. And in, the, in the, the thousands of people that I've talked to and the hundreds that I've actually helped is that what we found out is that 100% of the time, 100% of the time in working with them, they can tell me the event, the issues that caused them to go this direction. So once they can do that, 
the healing can begin because now they realize they weren't born that way. It wasn't a chemical thing. It was something that happened. And so that's typically how I work with them. I just want to add one, one of the biggest problems with the current model and standards of care for treatment of gender dysphoria is it completely disregards the existence or exploration of any other comorbidities. Comorbidities are other conditions that can be physical or mental that may be at, at work in the situation. And so what they're doing is in rather, taking, you know, rather than taking a step back and figuring out that this child is on the autism spectrum disorder or has depression or anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever it might be, they're just snatching that child up and saying, okay, it's because you were born in the wrong body and here you go. And they set them off. And none of those comorbidities are ever explored or addressed with any kind of treatment. And that's why in the study in Sweden, 19% increase in, the, in suicide because all of these other issues that are actually going on that are contributing to the gender dysphoria are ignored. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so comorbidities are the key and that's what I go looking for. That's what we all need to look for. And they're there every, every time. time. Every time. Every time. Aaron? Yeah, uh, I was just saying, you know, when people say, well, if I was born that way, you know, I, I look at things like alcoholism, right? The number of people that were alcoholics because their dad was an alcoholic and their grand grandparents were alcoholics and it, you know, it gets passed generation to generation. Um, and so, yes, there are things from my past that may have given me the pre predisposition towards something that doesn't mean it's right. Uh, that doesn't mean it's part of part of the design uh, that we have. But yeah, we all have those things in the past. And I think that's a, one of the big issues here is those things in the past aren't being addressed. It's just, well, here's the, here's the magic thing that's going to solve all the problems. Can I have one more? Yeah, yeah, sure. Just as Christians, if you're addressing other Christians, the fact of the matter is you can only hold one of three opinions about God if you want to believe that transgenderism is a true thing, you either have to believe that God is cruel, God is incompetent, or God doesn't exist. If God intentionally created people to have an inner landscape that is mismatched to their outer landscape, that is requiring them to live in significant pain. If that were a true thing, that would be a painful way to live, and they would be required to have this extensive medicalization. To me, that would indicate that we have a cruel God. If he is incompetent and he can't prevent this from happening or he can't heal... Um, Aaron is right. We're all broken. We all have some form of brokenness. Jesus never failed to heal anybody who asked for healing. So if we're saying that God can't prevent this from happening and can't heal someone from this, from whatever their comorbidity or trauma is, then he's an incompetent God. The only intellectually honest position on God, if you want to believe that transgenders were born that way and, and must be affirmed that way, is that he doesn't exist at all. And so I think in the church, that's a very logical and easy way to address it. Now, I will say, <coughs> excuse me, once a friend of mine who's a Christian was very angry with me after she heard me saying that. And she said, I don't fall into any of those three categories. And I said, well, maybe I missed something. You know, what fourth category do you think I missed? And she said, well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. That's been two years ago, and I asked her, please tell me when you think about it. And I think that's the crux of the issue. I haven't really thought about it. Yeah. Do you want to address the Title IX question that you have? Uh, I do, but I just, as a transition, uh, wanted to say, again, as, and, I, and I cited the statistic when I spoke, is it's so, so important to remember that in the vast majority of cases, gender dysphoria is a temporary condition, and it is a curable condition just by natural puberty. And what we are doing with gender-affirming care is you are taking a permanent solution and applying it to a temporary problem. Okay, because medicalization is permanent. When a, when a girl cuts off her healthy breasts, they're gone forever. When she has her uterus removed, they're gone forever. And then if she regrets her sex change, or attempt at a sex change, and wants to get married someday, 
she may never be able to have children. So it's, it's just so important to remember that, and this is what they're not talking about, but the truth of gender dysphoria is a, is a temporary condition that the vast majority of children, not, almost 90%, will grow out of if left to progress through, through puberty naturally, and that's so important to stress yeah, that. Gender dysphoria, in, in my view, is a symptom of something, something that's else. Going, yeah. going on. So it, right. if we look at it as a diagnosis, then we're looking at it the wrong way. It's a symptom of something that's going on that we, as helping people, need to find out so that we can help them. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how I didn't answer this question before, um, but the question is how do you address the proposed Title IX changes in light of the 14th Amendment rulings in favor of parental rights? So again, the, the, the case law is again 100 years old of just affirming parental rights. Um, there was an unfortunate fractured decision from the Supreme Court in 2000, which I didn't mention because I don't want to bore you and put you to sleep. It's called Troxel, Troxel versus Granville, but in this position, while they did affirm parental rights as fundamental, they kind of fractured on, well, what does that really look like and what's the correct standard of judicial review? And so now, among the circuit court level around the country, parental rights are being viewed in all different kinds of ways, which is causing a lot of muddling and, and problematic. So one of ADF's generational wins, one of our long-term goals is to clear that up at the Supreme Court at some level, which is why we like taking parental rights cases. Um, so there's that. Um, uh, but Title IX, there, it, it really is administrative fiat, right? Because our laws are supposed to be established by a legislature that is duly elected by the people. It's a representative government. And our representative government passed Title IX by the elected officials. So that's really the law. And what the current administration is attempting to do is basically say, well, that's what the law is, but we're going to say it means this. You see what I'm saying? So it, it doesn't, it's just going to take a lot of litigation and, and the administration will get sued, not just by ADF, but lawyers are in, and, and attorneys general, states attorneys general around the country over this, because it is, it is just not due process for the way that they're actually trying to do it. They're trying to change the law in a backwards sort of way. And ultimately, it will fail, but it just could take us a couple of years to get there. And there's a lot of destruction um, that, that can come in the meantime. Gotcha. Walt, we have had several questions come in specifically for you related to consequences. Obviously, you, uh, in becoming Laura for eight years, made some radical changes, hormonally, physically, so forth and so on. And so there's a couple streams of the questions. Uh, obviously, the impact physically, mm -hmm. I mean, you can't reverse some things in this process. Right. Um, but more broadly than that, what kind of consequences have you experienced from those decisions that now you've lived with for you know, more than 25 years or however long that's been um, as you kind of moved forward in life? Yeah, well... Um, surgery is irreversible. That's a big consequence. Yeah. Um, we have to bring that before the Lord and just realize that some things you can't change. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's an acceptance. I realize that I'm a biological man. Um, if, we, if we dig a little deeper and take a moment, we'll realize that this surgery that they do to claim that you're a female was originated for men who had testicular cancers and they used it to keep men alive and and did the surgery on them so that they wouldn't die from testicular I can't say that word it's a hard one <laughs> yeah <laughs> that cancer and so uh, it was originally designed for that purpose so like so many things that they do in this whole trans community whether it's the the uh, the hormone things, the blockers, they were used for other things and they bring them back. The surgery was actually used as a cancer surgical uh, procedure that they moved on to something else. So it didn't change anybody. I never changed uh, the consequence. You have body parts missing, um, but the Lord still loves me. And, and I've been married for 25 years, that beautiful lady right out. Katie's awesome. You know, that picture of me up there, you know, thank you. Yeah, last May. You know, I, I point that picture that you saw of Laura. That is not a woman. That back there is a woman. woman. 
<laughs> oh, come Smoking on, you, you, hot trophy wife. I was going to say, you usually refer to as your trophy wife. Come on, let's bring it out. There, there we go. it is. Okay. <laughs> um, I have just a little bit to add to the medical consequences. Clearly, I'm a lawyer and not a doctor, but I've done a lot, a lot of research and read a lot of studies. Um, and what, what they're not telling you, what they're not telling the general public about the, the long-term consequences of the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones in particular is shocking. Um, people who, A, so the, the, the puberty blockers, as Maria mentioned, um, were, have been used for cases of precocious puberty where kids started puberty too early. They used it to kind of slow it down, let them catch up. That is the only FDA-approved use of that drug. What they're doing with it now is not been approved. There have been no uh, systemic studies, peer reviews, uh, you know, where they've done placebo, anything to measure uh, the long-term consequences of that. But what they're finding now, as more and more kids have done this, is um, it does cause m other mental health issues. Um, it causes, uh, it can cause, lead to increased risk of stroke and heart attack, um, increased risk of cancers. Uh, they refer, what do you refer to it? Mineral something of the bones, but basically demineralization, basically severe osteoporosis in a lot of cases. Um, so these, these drugs are very powerful. And again, like Maria said, even if you change your mind and realize, wait a second, I wasn't supposed to do that. I really am a girl or whatever the case may be there. It sets into motion all of these consequences that can't be undone medically. Yeah. One other thing that it did, the consequences has made me an absolute advocate for stopping this total insanity of cutting body parts off, male or female. I'd also just like to address, I did not put pictures of this in my presentation because it's pretty horrific. These kids, these young kids especially, they're really being told that they can change sex, that they just need to do the hormones and the surgery and they will be the opposite sex. The surgeries, the phalloplasties, where they create a faux phallus for a girl, they deglove the entire forearm. They take, the pictures are horrific. It's just the bone. They go down almost nearly to the bone. They deglove it or they deglove the thigh. They take a big, thick chunk of it, wrap it into a tube, and sew it on and say, there, it's a penis. It's non functional. It's non-functional. Nope. If they want it to work as a sexual organ, they put a pump in it mm -hmm. that has to be pumped up. Um, it, it, these are Frankenstein surgeries. And I see these comments from these kids on social media who've been through it who talk about what a horror it is. Nobody told me this. I can't urinate. Mm -hmm. It takes. I just talked to a young man, a detransitioner, It'll take him three or three to five minutes just to empty his bladder because of his surgery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Casey and I sat with a young man in Maryland who had this phalloplasty as a de part of detransitioning. He ended up uh, having the work done on that phalloplasty numerous times, and so um, it it is doesn't function. It doesn't work. It is absolutely insane it's just part of that whole process it shouldn't happen to anybody yeah it's barbaric and i mean i know i don't like to really talk about this openly at church but you are talking about long-term permanent sexual dysfunction um, and inability so before these children even develop their sex characteristics and would become sexually active like it's erased it's broken it can never be fixed or restored that's right well and i was grateful that maria did not put those. I've seen We've her seen slides the that have included it's, that. Uh, in we were weeping. At, we, when we met Maria at her presentation, we were literally, we, we met each other in the background. We were weeping, realizing what they're doing to our kids. Yeah. One of the questions, one of the streams of questions that have come in really is with, with regard to resources. How, what do people do, both from... Um, specifically related to professionals? I had que several questions about how do I find a non affirming, you know, gender affirming, if, if what Sharon said is true, that Virginia is, the Commonwealth is one of the jurisdictions where you can get prosecuted in some measure for being a therapist, how, how do we go about doing that? Um, and yeah. I think Maria. I'll just leave or, it. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I've, that I've learned lately that's really been helpful in me helping other people is that... Uh, when I've came, come across this thing, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which is called ACEs, and it speaks to the trauma 
And when we dig into this, and I've been now recommending to people who are struggling with this to see a trauma therapist, and that when you go to a trauma therapist, you're not barred by law from seeing a trauma therapist about trauma. And so if you identify these issues where the person is struggling and, and, and use the trauma as treatment, and I mentioned this last night, but I had my, I've had several really exciting experiences, and one of them was just thrilling, where a, a man 74 years old contacted me about three weeks ago and told me that he'd been suffering with this identity issue since he was 13, and I'll make it quick, but I asked him specifically in there, he's been going to a therapist who said, you know, that he was transgender and that he transitioned and all this stuff. And I wrote him back and said, no, you're not transgender, but we're going to find out what's wrong and I'm going to help you. Tell me about your childhood history. And he explained to me that uh, he had witnessed at 13 when he started identifying as a female, his mother running around with a butcher knife trying to kill his dad, his dad. And this happened repeatedly in the house. My, my friends, that's trauma, okay? I don't care what else you call it, but it caused him to have this identity issue. And so now he's 74, he's contacting me, and he's going to this therapist who's a gender therapist. And so I told him, and he always went, you know, dressed up as a female. I said, don't go as a female this Thursday. Don't do it. Dress up as a man. Go in there and tell her that you talked to Walt Heyer, and he says, isn't that bold? God, I got guts. Walt, ha Walt has a reputation. Yeah, so I figured, you know, she's either going to have me arrested or shot. I didn't know. But anyway, I said, go in there and just tell him that you talked to me and that you have adverse childhood experiences. Get tested for ACEs because there's a scale. And so he went in and boldly said this to the lady dressed as a man. And she said, well, that's interesting. Let me run a test. He, he tested seven out of 10 on the scale. And she said, oh, okay, instead of an hour session, I think what we're gonna do is do a two hour session and test you for um, trauma. And so she went into this trauma therapy, no lie. I've got the emails. Even I weeped, my wife weeped when we got them. The two hour session since he's 13, 74, no longer after that two-hour session does he have any gender issues at all. It solved his problems. He finally got treated for trauma. And he, now he writes me about every few days and said, I still don't have the feelings. I still don't have the feelings. <laughs> it worked. I can't believe it. Because they addressed the underlying issue. They addressed the underlying issue. So he was fortunate that the gender therapist also was a specialist in trauma therapy and knew about ACEs. Mm-hmm. Now, I've talked to families who they've had their children in therapy for something, for, you know, autism, depression, uh, obsessive compulsive, something. And as soon as transgender comes up, everything else gets wiped away and ignored. So we have a resource on our site, advocatesprotectingchildren.org. We have a resource for helping you vet a therapist, what to look for, questions to ask, how to try to vet a therapist. Um, I want to say... No therapy may be better than bad therapy in this case. Mm -hmm. um, this is why I'm really encouraging churches to, to counsel, because at least in the church, you still have religious freedom to stand on. So I would definitely encourage, you know, looking into a Christian resource for a therapist. But, I mean, just a couple of simple questions, and we have them in this document on how to vet a therapist, can really open your eyes. Throw out the word transgenderism and see how the therapist responds. Pro-trans people do not like the word transgenderism, and they will jump on that. Um, that can be a litmus test for finding out where a therapist is. Some therapists that I know, and if you find a therapist who's not going to trans your kid, what they can do, <laughs> I'm sorry, what they can do is treat your child for something else. And the child doesn't need to know about that. We're not having the child in for therapy about trans. We're having the child in for therapy about social issues. We're dealing with anxiety. That will be the code. That'll be what's coded in the therapist's documents if, if it goes to you know any kind of insurance or whatever. You don't have to necessarily address the trans straight on, but you do need to find a therapist who's not going to go all in on that. Let me say that uh, out in the lobby at Maria's table and a couple places, you'll see a QR code for uh, 
her, her organization. Advocates protecting children. Right, and if you go, if you scan that, then there's a variety. It'll, it'll open up a whole variety of resources that you can take a look at, including uh, the resource page that Marie is talking about. Can I just add? I just Whoa, everybody add this. wants to jump in. Go I ahead. I know. There sorry, this is because it didn't really pertain to my talk, but I just I, I learned this this week, and it shocked me. And I think everyone needs to understand, especially parents, that the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, is an extremely, what we would call, woke organization. And even though the vast majority of their membership don't support this gender-affirming care model, that is what the Academy of American Academy of Pediatrics has adopted. And they have put forth recently standards of care to all pediatricians, uh, recommending that every pediatrician do a gender screening on every child and to instructing them to ask the parents to leave the room, regardless of the age of the child, so that they can gender screen this child. And then once they do that, they are using incorrectly HIPAA to hold those conversations and any records regarding those conversations as confidentially HIPAA-protected medical information from the parents. Please do not ever leave your minor child alone in a room with a physician under any circumstances. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And uh, Sex Change Regret website has got a lot of resources on it as well. Uh, So you can check that out. Sexchangeregret.com. Thank you. And if you go here to RBC and have a kid in the youth group, you can email myself or Lee, and we can give you a few recommendations of counselors uh, in the area that are believers. I also want to let you know that um, we, our young women that are on our youth staff, uh, Christina and, and Emily, um, I purchased a copy of the book Irreversible Damage for each of them, and I said, you know, because as Maria said earlier, historically, the whole transgender discussion was typically a male challenge, and it has become, as a social contagion, now more a teenage girl challenge, right? I mean, girls used to go off and rebel and go to the piercing pagoda and get their ears pierced together, and now they're all kind of declaring, you know, their change of gender together as a group. And well, we now they're going so- to Planned Parenthood together and getting right. hormones at Planned Parenthood. Exactly. exactly yeah, because right. abortion's no longer profitable. Planned Parenthood is redirecting all of its resources to a gender-affirming medical care to create lifetime medical patients that will right. reap billions of dollars. So I, I just want you all to know that we are doing everything we can to encourage and support our youth team in kind of understanding and managing and responding and looking out, like how do we support our families and our teens and especially our junior hires who are in that, you know, that challenging season of, of, of dramatic change in, in navigating all of that. Um, one of the things, and I, and I want several of you to respond to this, and when I did the announcement several weeks ago from the stage about that this weekend was coming, Uh, My wife scolded me. She said, don't use their language like that. And so this question says, do you think that using phrases like the LGBTQ plus community instead of struggles with same-sex attraction or someone who's confused about their gender identity leads to legitimacy? And one of the challenges... We all use words, and we use words that words mean something, words matter, and there's times when we shouldn't use their words because it, it, by, act, by actually using them, it, it almost seems to embrace the validity of those words, right? So well, Absolutely. That is the zone I am in. That's why when 100%. people write me, I say, you're not a transgender, you didn't transition, and you don't have gender dysphoria, but we're going to find out what's wrong. And and that is absolutely so true. We have taken on their language and we have actually helped them out. And you know, it's not gender affirming care, it's gender destruction care. Exactly Exactly right. right. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at everything that they do, you know, you look at it the opposite way, you know, you'll find out that they're really trying to destroy. They really want to destroy the church, by the way. Because if they can destroy male and female, the foundation of the church, the family, one man, one woman, that scares them, and get them together in marriage, then we have the, that's the foundation of the church. If they erase that, where's the foundation of the church? You've destroyed the family. You destroy the family by destroying children. You destroy the family by destroying male and female. And you destroy the church in the process. That's the whole game plan. It's Marxist. And I've written about it. 
And I think it's important that we just ask, am I speaking the truth? When I use the word trans woman, that's not true. There's no such thing as a trans woman. And I saw this today on social media and it made me laugh. I'm going to try to convey this. Kind of like the P in pterodactyl is silent, the trans wo in trans woman is silent. Because it's not a trans woman, it's a trans wo man. It's a man. We need to call it a man. That said, there are people who are really, really struggling. You know, the people who are, who are struggling with this, most of them are genuinely struggling with, their, with themselves, with who they are. We don't want to be unkind to them. We don't want to be cruel. We don't want to be mean. But we do want to be truthful. Jesus said we need to speak the truth in love. And I, I'm not going to call anyone a trans woman. I'm going to say a trans-identified you know, a transgender identified person or a man who is confused about who he is. They're struggling with a comorbidity that we need to find out and treat. Mm-hmm. Amen. Last couple of, last questions, kind of the last stream. Now, Maria, you started to wade into these waters when people asked about the pronouns and this and that. You can avoid, you know, it's easy to avoid certain things. Just say, hey, buddy, you know, or hey, whatever, you know. Um, in an effort to care, so I'm someone here who knows someone who's really battling with this. They declared themselves non-binary or transgender or whatever. What are practical ways that I can love them, walk with them, without endorsing some of those claims? Because as soon as, you know how this works, right? As soon as I make a, a statement that confronts where they're landing, I risk being kind of severed from their life, right? So how do I walk that line? What are, are there practical things that I can do? Now, Walt, you had your series of questions. Why do you think that, you know, so forth and so on. But what are some practical things that w- people can do to love others, but not kind of buy in? Aaron, you're, I'm going to start with you. Um, I mean, you, you hit on, the, well, I think, one of, the, one of the huge issues that are facing the teens in our church today, right? And that's, you know, they, they may hold God's word as true, authentic, and, and this, is, this is right. But man, if I go into my public school and I, in my pick a, pick a class that I'm in, say something kind of you know, clearly about what I believe uh, on this issue, you know, you're looked at as hateful, mean, you know, it's going to spread throughout the school. Oh, do you know how you know, terrible a person that is. And, and it's, and then, you know, when, when, um, when I was going to, to high school, if I said something about how I believed in, in creation, right. You know, people might look at me like, well, that's kind of weird. Who's does, do people still believe in that, but whatever, you're my friend and we can still play basketball, whatever. Now it, there's that whole additional pressure that well, you're a mean, toxic, bad person um, because you have that. And that's the, the tension that, that, our students, that our students live in. And, and to answer your question, you know, I, I think it goes back to, well, how do you just become a basic friend? To, to, how do you show basic kindness? And, and, um, and, you know, and I encourage our students all the time, you know, like our students, because of technology, a whole bunch of reasons, I, I, don't, I think we've lost some basic social skills. So yes. when you go out and you have some of those basic social skills of, of hey, you know, okay, let's go together, let's go do this, rather than all sitting, you know, I feel like a lot of our students sit in, sit in their rooms each night on their phones, kind of texting other people like, man, I'd really love to go do something, but we're all just going to sit here and maybe have some group conversation. <laughs> if one person is willing to say, hey, let's actually go and do this and put that out, a lot of people will join them, but they're like waiting for someone to take that first step and initiate, sure, take sure. that initiative. And I think if we do that, if you, if you initiate certain elements of of care and compassion and you're my friend um whether it's through hanging out you have the ability then to speak uh, into into people's lives the first thing i do is not to say oh hey that you know you're you identify as trans i'm not going to talk to you no I'm, I'm going to be your friend and after we've already had a lot of other conversations then yeah then maybe i then then we can talk about those issues mm-hmm. but how do you just i mean it's not that complicated. You build a basic friendship and relationship with them. Gotcha. 
Thank you. Anybody else? Well, because I'm such a lovable little fuzzball. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> you know, uh, the thing, people who I work with, even when I ask them that question, you know, why do you want to race who they are, they don't see that as offensive. And, and I just find it's so important to build relationships. Everything happens through relationships, even whether it's an email or whether I'm doing face-to-face -face or whether my wife and I, we've sat across from people. And, and they don't, it's interesting, I guess, because I've been through it, they don't see the things that I'm asking them as being offensive. I, I, I just don't get that. Even when I've done these conferences, people don't. And you recognize I'm not, I'm just not that offensive. I, I speak the truth and I, and I want to be treated just as well as they want to be treated. So in that exchange, we have a great deal we can accomplish together and it's worked every time. And as believers, we believe in the, in the whole concept of human dignity and that every human being is created in the image of God and is a reflection of God. And when we look at every person, regardless of their race, their religion, their color, their sexuality, their gender identity, whatever it might be, God calls us to look at them with compassion. Mm -hmm. And they need compassion. Um, and what that may look like in different contexts or situations depends. But we need to be loving, kind, and compassionate and speak the truth in love. I just, one last short little thing on this topic. I'm thinking about parents dealing with children or grandparents dealing with grandchildren when it's a close relationship that the person can't easily cut you off. I think one thing you can say to the pronoun change or, you know, calling a boy a girl is to maybe say, honey, you're asking me to do something that I don't believe God agrees with. I don't believe God agrees with this. And if I have to choose between offending God or offending you, I love you and I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to offend you because I can't offend God. Yeah, I'll say one last thing. That's hard for me to do. We know but that. When well, I told know. my friend Bill, Bill, who I'd known for years, worked with him in the auto industry, we were really close friends, and I changed to Laura, and I started giving him the pronouns. Bill, you got you to do the right pronouns. You got to do all this stuff. And Bill's really a cool guy. And so Bill's going like this. Hmm, pronoun. Oh, okay. He said, I've got it. I've got the pronoun. Oh, okay, cool. Wacko. <laughs> <laughs> It takes a close friend to be able to do that. Exactly. You know, uh, all of this began, well, it really started, I don't know, however long ago we met Maria at an event here locally with a bunch of nonprofits. Uh, but I got a call. You know, I've been in ministry for 25 years. I was a therapist for 10 years before that. I've been counseling people for 35 years. And I got a call. I was on call as the pastor of the week, and I got a call from an out-of-state young man who said, he said, if I became transgender, would I lose my salvation? And he, it was very clear in our conversation that he understood the gospel, but it also was clear that he was really, really struggling. And I didn't know what to do. Like, I, I, I always said, ah, you can't put a past, I've seen it all, you can't put anything past me. And I was suddenly at a loss. I didn't know what to, I didn't know how to respond to all of his questions, and I was suddenly scratching my head. I went to Walt's website, and uh, it says, email Walt. So I said, okay, why not? So I emailed Walt, and he got back to me within 10 minutes. And I said, I like this guy already. And we've become great friends, and I'm so encouraged by what he does in to, for the, the kingdom of Jesus to try to help bring some sanity to what's happening in our deteriorating world. And so out of that, here we are today, and tomorrow in our church services, as kind of our, during our sermon slot, Walt and I are going to be sitting here on stage, we're going to inter introduce him, I'm going to interview him, basically ask some questions. Please be in prayer for that time. We're going to have a lot more people tomorrow, our normal crowd and some visitors, and it's, a, it's my hope that we would really lovingly take a stance in this world for the things of Christ. I want to thank Maria for her hard work. I know she takes a lot of hits locally. She works very hard to bring these truths to bear. My wife, who's taking a stance uh, in the legal world, ADF is doing an amazing work to lead the charge in representing followers of Jesus 
in this world to try to make changes for the sake of the kingdom through that avenue. We all got to attack it from the direction that God has given us. And for Aaron and Lee and Emily and John and uh, Christina, I think I have everybody on the youth team there, um, who are really working to embrace our students and walk with them, wade into what's happening in our world today because we all have a responsibility to speak the truth in love because God created and God has a design and that's why we're here today to proclaim that and build his kingdom for his name. So you thank our folks for being here today. All right, I'm going to pray, and I think Maria and Walt will be in the lobby, Sharon and Aaron as well, uh, if you'd like to talk to them. But please don't be long, because Walt's got to go get his nap before he comes yes. to my house for dinner. Exactly. starting to take it right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for the contribution of each of our speakers and for Aaron's contribution on our panel. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us use this time. May it have equipped us, given us critical information and clarity on how it is that we need to move forward. And as a church, Lord God, that we would be a place that's a lighthouse, a compassionate lighthouse for those who are struggling and that people would never walk through the door and ever hear, we don't want your kind here. That every broken human being can walk through the door and receive the love of Jesus Christ. And God, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being here.